quick warning before we begin. This episode contains themes of a sexual nature. In the last episode, I went off to the National Archives with my producer, Sarah, found a newspaper interview with Crabbe's ex-wife, in which she insisted that Lionel Crabbe was alive and well and living in the Soviet Union. There are any number of theories about what might have happened to Lionel Crabbe, but the one certainty is this. He disappeared, vanished into thin air. And this idea of people disappearing, it's always fascinated me. Because wherever we go, we leave a trail of clues, bank cards, mobile phones, GPS, and the street cameras and CCTV. But in Crab's day, there were none of these things. So could it have been easier? Perhaps you know the story of the prisoners who escaped from an American jail in the early 60s, one of the boldest prison breakouts in history. And that prison was Alcatraz. Forbidding Alcatraz prison, from which no man has ever been known to escape, has its name for impregnability at stake. A daring break for freedom by three convicts triggers a manhunt through the caves with which the rock is riddled and throughout the entire San Francisco area. The breakout happened just a few years after Lionel Crabbe's disappearance in 1956. And those prisoners, they were not just intending to escape, they were intending to disappear forever. But how? After tunneling through a four-inch concrete wall, they climbed up a pipe shaft to the cell block roof. Then, in a series of incredible climbs and drops, they reached the water's edge. For most people, that water was the prison's most formidable obstacle. But to the escapees, it was their lifeline. If you're trying to leave no trace, then water is the ideal place to disappear. People will assume your body's been washed out to sea, and officialdom will eventually declare you dead. But if all's gone to plan, you're still alive, and you assume a new identity far from home. So what of those escapees from Alcatraz? They fool their guards, break out, and set off across the waters of San Francisco Bay on a makeshift raft. And then what? They were never seen again, and eventually the FBI closed its file. Some years back, I wrote up the story of these Alcatraz escapees, and this is where it all gets weird. You see, shortly after I'd published that story, I got an anonymous email from someone in the know, a friend of those escapees, and attached to that email were some photos, a group of men all in their late 70s, and I compared those photos to pictures of them when they were young men in prison, and my heart skipped a beat. I swear it was the same guys. And I'm telling you all this because when Margaret Crabb said her ex-husband Lionel was living in the Soviet Union, Perhaps she knew more than she was letting on, because she'd been shown a photo from the Soviet Union, and it was of a man dressed in Soviet naval uniform and a black fur hat. And that man, he looked the spitting image of Lionel Crabbe. The same distinctive nose, same bushy eyebrows. Was it Lionel Crabbe? And had he defected to the Soviet Union? I'm Giles Milton, 
And from something else than Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up Season 1, Ministry of Secrets. Episode 3, A Toast to Uncle Joe. Springtime is all about fresh air, fresh starts, and freshly clean homes. And it's the perfect time to give a fresh look at Simply Safe Home Security. The home security system many of the most anxious people I know recommend. Here's why people love it. Trusted by experts, Simply Safe was named Best Home Security System for 2024 by US News and World Report. And Newsweek awarded it Best Customer Service in Home Security. The system blankets your whole home in protection. It has sensors to detect break-ins, fires, floods, and more. Plus a variety of indoor and outdoor cameras to keep watch over your property, day and night. It's backed by 24-7 professional monitoring for less than a dollar a day, so you get fast emergency response and dispatch when you need it most. Simply Safe has given many of our listeners real peace of mind. I want you to have it too. Get 20% off any new Simply Safe system when you sign up for fast protect monitoring. Just visit simplysafe.com slash cover up. That's simplysafe.com slash cover up. There's no safe like Simply Safe. When I'm researching a story, I tend to take photos of every piece of evidence I find letters, documents, memos, and telegrams. I then file them away on my laptop, just in case. I'm quite obsessive about this, because you never know when you're going to want to cross-reference something. While I've been sifting through all the crab evidence, Sarah's been hitting the phone, calling libraries and museums in the Portsmouth area. So it's amazing. I called up this um, diving museum, which is in Gosports, just on the opposite side of Portsmouth Harbour. Yeah. And I call up the number, and I get put through to a woman called Anne Bevan. But she tells me really it's her, her husband who's the big expert. He's written lots of books about crab and given lots of talks and has all these contacts, but he's very ill. In fact, she told me he's dying right now. She was, she was literally sitting by his bedside and said he's dying and doesn't have that long to live. It sounds like she knows an awful lot about the story too. And she is definitely a person to speak to. She lives in Portsmouth, does she? Anne tells Sarah how John Bevan spent half a lifetime investigating the mystery of Lionel Crabbe, doing it all from the family home just a stone's throw from Portsmouth Harbour. And she explains how John was a diver and a local historian, and the Crabbe story fascinated him. So he started interviewing everyone still alive with a connection to Crabbe. And while he was interviewing these people, many of them local, Anne helped establish Portsmouth Diving Museum. She collected every conceivable item associated with Lionel Crabbe. His passport, his pen, his diving compass. She's even got the key to his bedroom in the Sallyport Hotel, where he spent his final night before diving into Portsmouth Harbour. In John's final months, when he was very sick, Anne began to take on his work. She even started giving talks, sharing with Crabbe enthusiasts the huge dossier of evidence that she and her husband had compiled. So now, Sarah and I are going to meet up with Anne in Portsmouth to get more of a sense of Crab the Man and what happened in the lead-up to his disappearance. Where are we meeting her? She said she's going to be at the exit in a blue anorak. Blue anorak. Yeah. Are you Anne by any chance? Yeah. <laughs> <Hello>. <laughs> 
I'm Giles, Hi. Sarah. Sarah. Hi. <laughs> Very nice Hi. to meet you. She's petite, short, silvery hair, and one of those lovely smiles that starts with her mouth and ends in her eyes. The first thing you'll notice is HMS Warrior. Anne takes charge from the minute we meet her. Tells us she's going to give us a tour around Portsmouth, show us Crab's old haunts, take us through Crab's steps on the day before he disappeared. We're right on the harbour here. You are right on the harbour front. And actually, in 1956, when this dive um, happened, there was an extension... The harbour's immense, stretches for what looks like miles, and there's people drinking coffees on the quayside, and the sun is shining, and it all feels quite Mediterranean. And as we look out across the water, which is actually sparkling, we can see all kinds of ships. The side that we're standing on at the moment is the military side. Right. So if, when we cross the harbour, you'll see your naval ships are all docked on this side, commercial or merchant ships on the other side, uh. ferries to the Isle of Wight. And for, for divers, this has always been a very important place, has it? Has the, has the diving For naval centre, divers. Naval divers, yeah. Correct. Anne leads us round one side of the harbour, pointing out sights on the way the huge Spinnaker Tower, a giant white observation platform, and the docks, and the fish and chip shops. All right, let's go find a pub. <laughs> and then I see it, a pub overlooking the harbour. This is what Anne wants to show us, the pub where Lionel Crabbe watched the arrival of the Soviet ships. We head upstairs. Oh, this is amazing. I like the idea of Crab sitting there. With a few pints lined few up pints. on his table. Probably quite excited about the challenge ahead, no? Excited, maybe a bit nervous, I don't know. We sit down at the very table where Crab sat that day, where he drank his pint and smoked his cigarettes, where he contemplated everything that was to follow. And now we're here, now we're seated in his seat. I can see why he chose this pub, this table, this window. Because from here, he had the perfect view of the three Soviet warships. He could see their guns, their radar, their state-of-the-art navigation equipment. And if he had binoculars, he could even see their crew. I ask Anne, what was Crab thinking that day? What was his state of mind? I would have said he would have been very excited, partly because it was another opportunity for him to get back in the water, to meet all his friends again, and to be able to do something that he was, was expert at, which was diving. So Crab, he's excited, perhaps even a little nervous. The diving mission's about to happen. But there's another reason for those nerves. And to explain what's going on in his head, I need to rewind a few years. I want to take you back to the early 1950s. Life was going well for Crab back then. His wartime adventures may have come to an end, but he was still working for the Navy, still making headlines. But out of the blue, his life is about to be turned upside down. It's 1955, the year before his secret dive. Crab's not getting any younger. He's 46, not as fit as he once was. And one day, he's given some devastating news. He's being stood down by the Navy, retired. 
It must have been a huge blow, crushing, because overnight he lost everything he lived for. And I'm not just talking about the salary. He lost the camaraderie, the drinking with old mates. Suddenly, there was a gaping hole in his life. And back then, there was zero support from the Navy. Anne Bevan recalls one of Crabbe's friends saying he was... Very distressed, really, when he saw the lengths to which Crabbe had been reduced when he left the Navy. Because you've got to remember, Crabbe was never part of the old boys' network, hadn't been to Eton or Oxford, didn't have a private income, and he feared, really feared, sliding back to the poverty from which he'd come. He moved from Portsmouth to London, rented a cheap bedsit, but even then he didn't always have enough cash to pay the rent, and it went from bad to worse. He was actually employed to carry a sandwich board up and down the street. Imagine Lionel Crabb, wartime hero, now penniless, reduced to traipsing the streets of London with a sandwich board hanging round his neck, the sort that were used to advertise closing down sales or cheap men's suits. It was degrading. That just broke Crabb's heart, having to sink so low to try and get employment. There were a few happy moments. He met and married Margaret Player, and she was gorgeous. And for a few brief months, Crabbe seemed happy. But remember, they soon separated, and then they divorced. What had gone wrong? In a series of private letters to Lionel Crabbe, found by Anne and John Bevan, Margaret poured out her troubles. Troubles caused entirely by him and his ever-growing debts, and the fact he was hassling her for money. I've asked an actor to voice up Margaret's words. You must know that my health has suffered considerably as a result of living with you due to the ever-present weight of past debts, that you make no effort to settle, and even worse, it will be many months before my mind or nerves recover from the frightening hell of the past year. There is a difference between helping someone in distress, which is what I thought I did when I first gave you money, and just handing over one's entire savings to someone who won't even alter the standard of living to begin to pay off degrading debt. For your sake, I put it clearly, marriage between us is impossible because you are sexually perverted. That alone is enough to disgust and terrify, and even worse, your indulgence in abnormal sexual practices. Please leave me alone to try and repair some of the damage you have inflicted on me. Those abnormal sexual practices, when their divorce came through, it was on the grounds of perversion. It turns out that a close friend of Crabbe's, a fellow naval man named Gordon Gutteridge, said he knew exactly why the marriage had fallen apart. The problem, he said, was that Crabbe had a fetish. Here's an extract of an interview that Gordon Gutteridge gave to John Bevan for a book he was writing on Crabbe. It's read by an actor. His oddity was rubber. He liked shiny blue rubber bedsheets and a wide variety of mostly domestic rubber items. Additionally, he also wore a cut-down pink lady's Macintosh underneath his uniform. These days, we're pretty used to fetishes and people can do whatever they want so long as it's legal. But this was 1950s England. Bishops and church bells and all that. There was right and wrong. And Margaret clearly thought her husband's rubber fetish was wrong. 
So I'm still at the pub on the Portsmouth quayside with Sarah and crab expert Anne Bevan. And we're at the very table where Lionel Crabbe sat on that April day in 1956, the day before his dive. And here's the thing. I'd been assuming all along he was observing the Soviet warships with his binoculars and scanning the guns or the engines or whatever. But what if he wasn't observing the ships after all? Because ever since I've read Margaret Crabbe's newspaper interview about how she believes Lionel Crabbe's in the Soviet Union, I can't help wondering, what if Lionel Crabbe was trying to make contact with those KGB agents? Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. It's 1955, a year before Lionel Crabbe's secret mission. It was a dark time for him, but in every period of darkness, there's always the occasional flash of light, the occasional reminder that not everything is gloomy and bad. And in that year, Crabbe had one of those flashes of light. Remember, he'd been retired from the Navy, lost contact with his mates in Portsmouth, and was in London, penniless and scraping a living and gambling whenever he could. And then, one day, he bumped into his oldest mate, Sidney Knowles. Knowles had been Crabbe's wartime diving buddy, his brother-in-arms, and together they'd saved some of Venice's most famous buildings by defusing a tonne of underwater mines left by the Germans. The two of them had lost contact over the previous few years, but now this chance meeting well, Crabbe was overjoyed, and so was Knowles. To my amazement and my joy, I saw Commander Crabbe sat there. And uh, we had a touching reunion. I opened the door and said, hello, sir. And he looked up and recognition came into his eyes and he said, hello, Knowles. <laughs> a word or two about Sidney Knowles. He lived to a ripe old age and actually wrote a book about his experiences called A Diver in the Dark. He was eagerly sought out by Crab obsessives, desperate to hear about his wartime adventures with Crab, and of course, about Crab's mysterious disappearance. Knowles was only too happy to give video interviews like this one. Commander Crab uh, contacted me. I then left the Navy. I came across this particular video by chance. It was made in 2007 by a filmmaker named David Jackson Wills, who now lives in Australia. You can occasionally hear him in the background. He'd left an Amazon review of Sidney Knowles' book, and after a bit of Googling, I managed to find his email address. 
And the next thing I know, he sent me more than two hours of his interview with Knowles. I joined the Navy on the 3rd of September, 1939. The day I actually joined on Saturday, yeah. as a war broke out on Sunday. He speaks with the soft lilt of the northwest of England, and he looks physically sturdy with big faded tattoos on both his arms. He's dressed quite casually for the interview, in jeans and a blue cardigan. And if you listen to him talking, it's like he wants to get things off his chest. Here's filmmaker Jackson Wills asking Knowles about his reunion with Crabbe. Do you feel that your relationship with Commander Crabbe had changed considerably in this time? I'm sorry to say yes, although I don't want to say yes. Excuse me, my eyes are full of tears. Mm -hmm. It's OK. And I can't help wondering if Sidney Knowles might be the key to unlocking the mystery of Lionel Crabb, because they were such close friends. We had a, a friendship that's not, uh, how shall I say, it's not frowned upon, but it's not usual in the Royal Navy, where an officer and a rating yeah. become great friends. Knowles, the rating, the Navy junior, adored Lionel Crabb, the officer. I admired his guts, I really did. He's a very brave man. Yeah. And maybe he admired mine. Knowles was delighted to see Crabb again. He'd done all right for himself working as a lorry driver, and he often found himself in London. So from this point on, each time he was in town, he'd look up his old mate. And then, one evening, Crabb invited Knowles to a party hosted by someone that Crabb had only recently met. But I was shocked and surprised when I found that uh, there was a tremendous amount of maybe 20 or more homosexuals. And the host of these homosexual parties, it was none other than a man named Anthony Blunt. Now, there are a few things you need to know about Anthony Blunt, and these are the main ones. First of all, he was a distinguished art historian, 100% establishment, and so close to the royal family, they'd put him in charge of their personal collection of paintings. He was also leading a secret gay life. And don't forget, this is the 1950s, and homosexuality is illegal, punishable by a long prison sentence. And his secret life didn't end there. During the war, Blunt had worked for British intelligence, but at the same time, he'd been spying for the Soviet Union. Miranda Carter is an expert on Anthony Blunt. He seems to have passed over to the Russians pretty much everything that came across his desk. Something in the region of nearly 2,000 documents. The war ended and life went back to normal for Blunt. In fact, his wartime spying remained a secret until the late 1970s. But let's go back to the early 1950s and Blunt is hosting constant dinner parties in his flat in central London. Blunt's type was really sailors and Australian carpenters and, uh, you know, big brawny men who would be seen going up in the lift to the top flat with a case of wine. <laughs> and along with those carpenters and sailors, one regular guest is Lionel Crabbe. <laughs> and when Crabbe invites Sidney Knowles to join him, Knowles is shocked by the scene that greets him. Not just the gay scene, 
but the conversation between the guests. They would blame me talking about Russia and Uncle Joe. Uncle Joe, Stalin, ruler of the Soviet Union during the Second World War, communist dictator. And the people at those parties were actually talking fondly about him. And uh, it sounded to me and looked like a communist cell. The conversation was way above my head, a lot of intellectuals. But Knowles was concerned. His old wartime buddy, they'd shared so much, seemed to be totally losing the plot. I said to Commander Crow, what is this? He said, it's quite all right, Knowles, don't worry. They're just friends. He said, you're getting lots of free drink. Why are you wondering about Knowles? But Knowles was worried. He tried to brush it off, sweep it under the carpet. After all, what Crabb said was true. He did get a ton of free booze at these parties. But the communist stuff, it kept coming back to him. I said to Commander Crabb, what are these people? He said, well, you've heard them. They're like Uncle Joe. We all loved Uncle Joe during the war, didn't we? Look what they, what they did for us Russians. And maybe Crabb had a point. After all, the Russians had fought on the same side as the Allies in the Second World War. They'd helped the Americans and British win the war. But Knowles felt uneasy. And the more he went to these parties, the more he noticed a change in Crabb. He got so blatant pro-Russian that I thought something was going to happen. And I was very, very disappointed with Commander Crabb's attitude. And I thought, he's going to go to Russia. I don't like this. So Knowles thought Crabb was going to defect to the Soviet Union, and he refused to let things stand. He was going to pull Crabb back from the brink. And I tapped him about it, and he simply said to me that, Knowles, one can be a patriot and a communist. And that did it. I thought, this has gone too far. I think he's going to join the Russian Navy now. He thought Crabb was going to join the Russian Navy, so he confronted Crabb, asked him directly, but each time, Crabbe fobbed him off with the same stock answer, that one could be a patriot and a communist. Knowles didn't agree, and this was his old friend, his diving buddy. Crabbe was in a very dark place indeed. He was about to commit treason. And so Knowles took a giant, momentous decision. Well, I made my mind up with much feeling to report this to the government. And I literally wrote a letter addressed to MI5. So Knowles reports Crabb to MI5, Britain's internal security agency. It was agony for Knowles, absolute agony. And I was hurting inside, I was really hurting inside, yeah. because the man who I loved I was putting him away. Putting him away, in one sense, he really was, because he just betrayed his oldest mate. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Anne Bevan showed us lots of Crab's old haunts on our trip to Portsmouth and shared details of Crab's personal life. And she also told us there was someone we must contact. Someone who, we hope, will be able to reconstruct Crab's final hours. Find out what led to his disappearance. That person is Peter Marshall. He was a young reporter in Portsmouth, the first on the ground to cover the story way back in 1956. And now he's nearly 90. So Sarah and I jump on a Zoom call with him, and he's ever so friendly and happy to chat. OK, let me just cast my mind back 67 years. I mean, it's, <laughs> it doesn't seem true, does it? Peter Marshall's long retired, lives with his wife in Torquay on the south coast of England. It's known as the English Riviera because it's often sunny and there's lots of palm trees. And Peter Marshall suggests we come down. We'll maybe find somewhere nice by the sea to go and have lunch together. That's what he'd really like. So will you all email me a confirmation of the date and time? We're hoping he'll tell us about the cover-up, how it started, who was behind it, because it might help explain the disappearance of Lionel Crabbe. Your coffee cup is very naval yeah, in theme. Yeah. Yeah, well, <laughs> so a few days later, we're sitting in his first floor study with a wonderful view out to sea. My great, great, great grandfather. And it turns out he'd been in the Navy and the sea had always been a part of his life. So Nelson is in my blood, you see. So. <laughs> Back in the 50s, Peter tells us, when he lived in Portsmouth, he was an ambitious young journalist. He'd even set up his own agency. It was called Peter Marshall's News Service. I employed three reporters and a photographer, and we had a good little business going there. He covered all sorts of things, mainly naval. Ships coming and going, where they'd been, welcomes home, human stories about, you know, uh, families who hadn't seen each other for two years, all that sort of stuff. It was, it was all pretty local, until, that is, the arrival of those three Soviet warships in the spring of 1956, led into the harbour by the largest of them all, the Orjonikidze with its two escort destroyers. And of course, that was really very big news. It even made it onto Pathé newsreels. The Russian leaders walk down the red-carpeted gangplank, while a guard of honour from HMS Victory presents arms. As they step ashore, the band strikes up. Bulganin and Khrushchev stand bareheaded. And Peter Marshall, because he had a press pass, was allowed very close to the ships. And there was music and flags and cheering. And because this was such a rare event, unique in fact, the locals flocked to the harbour in their thousands. Because people were fascinated to see it, not least because it was the Russians. Um, you know, the fact that there was a sort of a shadow in the background of are they friends or foes. And those crowds who were cheering as the ships arrived, they were even allowed on deck to have a look around. People wanted to take the opportunity to go and actually say, I've been on board a Russian ship. 
So Peter Marshall, he files his story that afternoon and he sends his photos to the dailies on Fleet Street, home to all the newspapers in those days. And he assumes that that was pretty much that. His story of the day was done. But it didn't quite work out like that. Because his story, well, it was only just beginning. But before we get ahead of ourselves, what of Khrushchev and his entourage? They've arrived in Portsmouth Harbour, they've disembarked. What happened next? 4,000 people pack the route to the harbour station. Within a few minutes, the visitor's train is on its way to London. And that's where they're going to meet with the Prime Minister, Anthony Eden, and with his officials, and have that cup of tea with the Queen. This is Eden's big moment, and he wants nothing to go wrong. There's a lot riding on this visit. Not only Eden's reputation, but Britain's standing in the world. So he greets Khrushchev and Bulganin in his typical English fashion, all stiff and formal, shakes their hands, and the smiles and goodwill, and the cameras are flashing. And amazingly, it's all going to plan. No toilet jokes from Khrushchev, no gags about penises. Even Khrushchev's impromptu speech goes well. Soviet Union, he says, wants firm friendship with Britain and the United States, and international peace demands it. I want to bring back Masha, my Russian friend, with the short hair and the big silver rings. She's been looking into the Russian side of the story, and she says there were some awkward moments. And when they went to number 10 Downing Street, they were very disappointed. They thought it was dirty and run down. <laughs> But Eden, you know, he's ever the diplomat. He smooths it over with his legendary charm. And off go Khrushchev and company to Buckingham Palace to meet the Queen. They really liked her and she was very unpretentious. And she took them around Buckingham Palace for like a tour. And then she invited them to have some tea. Brilliant. And she had to be tea with the Queen. Yeah. <laughs> and um, it was all very relaxed. So Anthony Eden is delighted about how the whole thing is going. And he has yet more treats up his sleeve. A lavish banquet, a night at Chequers, his country estate. So while Khrushchev and company are dining and drinking in London, what's going on back in Portsmouth? It's nighttime now and the crowds have long since gone home. And Peter Marshall and his journalist mates head for the pub. But even they soon call it a day, head home, and Portsmouth falls into a long, deep slumber. That night, it passes off quietly. Dawn is breaking, but it's still quite dark. Remember from episode one, where Lionel Crabbe and his diving buddy, Frankie Franklin, creep into the docks of Portsmouth Harbour, darting through the shadows. We're back to where we started, Crabbe's secret dive. He gets into his wetsuit slips into the water, heads to the bottom, then swims out towards Khrushchev's vessel. And what happens next? It's crucial. Crab expert Anne Bevan again, with the details she learned from her husband. 
We know that he made it to those ships because he was seen by the Soviets between the, the two vessels. He would never have come to the surface unless there was a problem. And he was seen to be clinging to a rail on the side of the vessel in distress. In distress? But remember how Margaret Crabbe is convinced her ex-husband ended up in Moscow? and how his best mate, Sidney Knowles, believes Crabbe wanted to join the Russian Navy. What if, rather than being in distress, Crabbe was trying to signal to the KGB agents on Khrushchev's vessel? What if he wanted to get aboard to start a whole new life? Next time on Ministry of Secrets. It's 1956. Local Portsmouth journalist Peter Marshall is investigating the beginning of a dramatic cover-up. But will he get the evidence in time? Get your cameraman, go back, take a picture of that page with his signatures on as quick as you can and get it to me. Want the full story? Unlock all episodes of Cover Up Ministry of Secrets ad-free right now by subscribing to The Binge. All episodes all at once. Plus, you'll unlock brand new stories dropping every month. That's all episodes, all at once, all ad-free. Just click subscribe on the top of the cover-up Ministry of Secrets show page on Apple Podcasts or visit getthebinge.com to get access wherever you listen. Find out more about The Binge and other podcasts from Sony Music Entertainment at sonymusic.com forward slash podcasts. Cover-up season one, Ministry of Secrets, is a Something Else and Sony Music Entertainment production. It's hosted and written by me, Giles Milton. The producer is Sarah Peters. The junior producer is Martha Miller. The production coordinator is E.K. Egbitola. Peggy Sutton is a story consultant. Jeremy Wormsley composed the original music with mixing and sound design from Peregrine Andrews. Isis Thompson is the editor and executive producer. With thanks to actors Ginny Fiol and Dominic Frisby and Tuning Fork Productions. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.